Welcome to another edition of the Dishcast. I'm your host, as it were, Andrew Sullivan. You all know me by now. I am this week talking with someone I've known for decades from our uh, college days. Well, his college days, my early graduate days at Harvard. Um, he's gone on to be a, a media phenomenon. Um, he, is, he runs something called Ish Entertainment, which uh, produces uh, documentaries and nonfiction programming. He was head of programming at VH1 for quite a while, where he degraded the discourse and our general culture with <laughs> grotesque <laughs> reality TV, all of which was immensely entertaining, nonetheless. He's a very high-low figure, as it were. He was co-founder and creative director of the People Pack he started after Trump's election, uh, a pack devoted to highlighting, thinking about, preventing what Michael thought was Trump's threat to liberal democracy and to America and the idea of America. His name is Michael Hirshhorn, uh, one of the smartest people I've ever met and one of the Best, too. Uh, I don't mean to shower you with praise, but uh, I'm really thrilled to have you on. on I'm so on thrilled to be here, and I'm so glad you, you, you invited me on. Well, good. Um, we used to have endless conversations at Charlie's, was it? Was it Charlie's? Where was the, the sub place next down in, uh, uh, remember that place? Where the dude behind the counter, we were there all night long sometimes. It was le It was open late, and... Bad lighting and and fries and bad things. Bad to lighting, eat. bad food. Yeah. yeah, but great company and huge fun. And so, um, let us consider this a reprise of that conversation, Michael. Um, let me start by asking you if you were to describe why the uh, the attack on the United States Capitol, apparently very well planned, violent, brutal terrifying. Where did that start? Where did, where did that come from? I don't want you to do some epic, but, <laughs> but in the last decade or so, where do you, where did you see this coming from? Well, so, so the, the only thought that I have that hasn't been rehashed endlessly on Twitter and on, on MSNBC, MSNBC and, and CNN um, comes from sort of, a, sort of a constellation of conversations and, and things I read. Uh, sort of early on in the COVID crisis, the, the super cool hipster son of some friends of mine uh, called me up and said, dudes, you liberals have it all wrong, right? People want to party. People want to have fun. People don't want to have other people telling them what to do. And uh, I, was, I was reading the really brilliant uh, Ayad Akhtar uh, book, Homeland Elegies, who was sort of talking about his father and how his father's embrace of the idea of America was the idea that was America was a place and a unique place in the world where there were no limits on your behavior, there were no ethical constraints, that you could fully do whatever you want and, and you could screw over other people and it was a place of profound in, uh, personal individualism. And, and what I saw last week, and, and I think the, that kind of confusing mix of, of deep violence and also kind of cartoonish glee is an expression, I think, of, of, a, of a kind of core 
America, American idea and important American impulse that Trump tapped into, which is he was on the team of fun. And people like me, you know, from the uh, what was the the Michael Tracy thing, the the left liberal uh corporate uh, authoritarian monoculture we're not fun <laughs> well you're not i mean let's face it yeah. <laughs> it's not fun yeah you mean there's not, a certain no kind of anarcho-libertarianism without consequences that americans have always embraced somewhere and it's and if you do something bad there's always somewhere else to go you know there's always this constant reinvention of oneself there is a, a real thrill of of snubbing authority in America, and and also a sort of uh, Ferris Bueller kind of goofing off as something, and 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 taking to the streets and breaking the rules and getting away with it. That's nonetheless very much part of American culture, and was to some extent part of Reagan's appeal too. Uh, let's have fun. We're going to be America again. We're not going to be so dour and Carter-esque. And, and I remember coming into this when I arrived in America in 84, which was sort of a high watermark, really, of this, fuck yeah, uh, America. Um, it was in absolutely intoxicating coming from a very repressed class-based society. So I, I'm, I'm just agreeing with you. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it, I think it's the origin of the massive deficits that Americans decided, fuck it, in the 80s, let's do it anyway. Uh, let's yeah. invade other countries, whatever. Uh, this sense of lack of responsibility that fueled it. But this is, this is, this is more than that, right? I mean, this comes from another, for, for sure. another part of American culture. How would you, how would you characterize that? I mean, I, I, well, I was, I, yeah, go on. Yeah, I th I th I'm sure you'll disagree with me. I, I, I find myself uh, convinced by, you know, I've spent a lot of time over the past few years, you know, there's been a series of kind of revisionist American histories. Uh, we, we won't get into the 1619 project, but, but uh, Jill, Jill Lepore's These Truths made, I think, a really compelling and very academic and very closely ar argued case that these strains were not only core, uh, you know, drivers of American democracy, but that 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 race was built into and and fear of blackness was built into the American narrative from the very beginning. And so that what we're seeing now, just because we hadn't seen it, because we're of a certain age, we hadn't seen it, um, doesn't mean it wasn't there. Um, and if you talk to black writers and scholars, they've seen it. They've been saying it. They've been saying it's present. If you're of a certain age, you were alive when when uh, lynchings were still happening. Lynchings happened until the '60s. Um, I was on a um, I'm, I'm on this uh, rather predictably groovy new app called Clubhouse, and Clubhouse is a is a kind of podcasting, but a bunch of people get together and talk. And I, I was on for about three hours earlier this week with a group of really really smart young uh, black people. A lot of them in the music business but also people like Kevin Powell, the writer. And, and what really struck me and moved me, and, and, and as, a, as a Jew uh, and somebody who kind of has, I think, really embedded in my DNA um, the, the stories of my parents and their escape from Nazism, that if you're black and of a certain age, or maybe not even of a certain age, you have those stories 
within your own personal history, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, even your parents, of really horrible, either humiliating or genuinely awful racial incidents. And so, so if, you know, if you are looking to pay attention, you can see that that never actually went away. And so, you know, when I'm looking at the images from January 6th, um, you know, the, the Confederate battle flag, which we're reminded is not the actual Confederate flag. It was an explicitly racist, um, you know, creation that came up after the Civil War. Uh, you see the Camp Auschwitz shirts. You see that these are things that are not out of the swim of, of American history, but very much part of them. And, 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 and I think just to bring in one, yet one more thing, and then I'll shut up, um, race may not be the only story of American history, but, it is, but our failure to deal with race in the way that the Germans dealt with Nazism means that it's going to continually come back and, and, and it's, it's going to get, you know, it's like embers of a fire that never really go out. And that, it, that the next Donald Trump that comes along can continue to stoke those. Why? I mean, you've basically racialized this. You said this was a, this was a racial demonstration. But I think race is at the center of, of what happened. It, it is part of it. There's no, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, but then you have a figure like the uh, vegan QAnon guy with the, uh, the, the, the beautiful hairy chest and the horns on his head who is not eating in prison because he's a, he can only eat organic food, according to his mother. How did he get wrapped up on this? How, I mean, QAnon, which is another big part of this, is just cray-cray conspiracy theory, right? That's just, that's, that's conspiracy paranoia that has also been a deep part of and a paradoxical part of American culture, right? Well, for sure. I mean, this seems to be this seems to be at a at an unbelievable level, but clearly core to QAnon is racism and anti-Semitism, right? It's sort of it's it's the it, it it's so core to it that that it doesn't even have to be spoken about that much. Um, you know, the the, the there's always anti-Semitism, but that but but I think that there's there's a reason that this is mostly white people. I mean, what's interesting to me about QAnon is how female it is. Really? I, I wasn't aware of that. How do you know how well, female... Well, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, you know... Well, some of its leaders, in other and words. I, yeah. Sorry? Some of its leadership, in other words. We don't really have an understanding of the, of the demographics of its base because it's very hard to measure, I would imagine. But yes, there are, yeah, there are yeah. women there, too. Yeah, and these are, these are seemingly middle-class and upper-middle-class white women uh, who, you know, have no other economic issue but if you uh, asked you know. if you asked them and people have asked them i just saw a, a, a little piece of video where they went through and asked a, a whole variety of people why are you here they had a pretty simple explanation which was that the entire election was rigged by a range of forces so that a landslide for trump had actually been reversed and they were there to stop certification. This wasn't just a, this wasn't a race riot in that sense. It was a very specific political project to prevent the certification of a presidential election. They believed was completely fraudulent, rigged as if you read the president's speech to the crowd, he goes on and on and on about this was rigged. They rigged it like they've never before. 
you've got to stop the overthrow of our democracy. And, and that's what struck me so much is that the arguments and rhetoric we have been using about saving democracy from Trump, they are using the exact same words to say they've got to save democracy from the people who are against Trump, the entire elite that's fermented this conspiracy that have tried to destroy him from the minute he got in there. I mean, that, that seems to be the, the very core reason they all cited. There may be all sorts of other cultural, psychological, social things involved in this, but that's what they said. And when you think about it, if that, and they've been told this now routinely, regularly, and through all the media channels, it's a massively rigged election. Why wouldn't you? I mean, why do you need any other reason? If, if it were true, then surely that would be the only patriotic response, right? Well, sure, uh, but I think, but I think some there, there are a couple building blocks of of that particular big lie, um, and it's funny because because uh, our our company uh, last spring had a film uh, called Kill Chain: The Cyber War in Americans Ele America's Elections that came out on HBO, and that film has now been embraced by certain aspects of the MAGA and QAnon uh, universe because actually what it what it tells is a somewhat uncomfortable story about the degree to which our election systems are indeed hackable, as they say. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the point about the film, the ultimate point about the film, was that the lack of visibility and accountability, uh, that the biggest danger around the lack of visibility and accountability for, uh, for American election systems was a breakdown in trust in the liberal order, which is precisely what ended up happening. Um, but, the, but the other key building block for the Stop the Steal campaign was focused on cities like Philadelphia, uh, Milwaukee, uh, Chicago, Detroit, not Chicago, uh, Detroit, Primarily black cities and black votes. The demands for recounts were all in uh, uh, African American centric uh, counties, and that was certainly part of the narrative, either implicitly or explicitly, that these these were votes that almost definitionally, because they were black votes, could not have been legitimate votes. I think there was an element of that. I think I think if you want to look for that, you can definitely find it. But then you also have, as you said, conspiracy theories about Dominion voting machines, which is a much more esoteric sort of uh, con elite conspiracy to rig it so that suddenly all the votes are switched automatically in some uh, software magic uh, from one vote to another. And also the sense that Corporate America is has been against, uh, at least in its most vocal uh, elements. Certainly, big tech, etc., have been hostile to Trump and to his voters for a very long time. Um, uh, I'm just pushing you on some of this because I think I think sure. if we if we argue that this is a uh, a radical white supremacist defense of white supremacy, as it were. I think you're, you're, you're accusing a lot of people who voted for Trump of, 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 of really extreme views. I don't mean just racism, because racism is clearly part of all this, uh, but white supremacy, which is a much more severe version of racism. 
<clears throat> it seems to me. And I, I, my objection to most of this is the hyperbole of that expression, which indicates that most people today still hold the views of the KKK and every white person has that within them. And at any moment, it can be triggered or unleashed um, and that everything in American politics can be put through that prism. I think, I think that's, let me just, I think that's too exaggerated. I think that it's designed to inflame and to catch attention as opposed to describe what might be happening. I think grappling with the legacy of race in this country is, is vital. And I agree with you. And, and I, I also confess to a certain level of, of blindness about this because I just wasn't brought up here. And so those, er, those first 20 years of your life where you are taught the unspoken things about the family, the, 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 the old aunt in the attic, the, the family stories that remember this grotesque thing that no one talks about anymore, those things that you absorb by osmosis wherever you're from, I never got. There, there, I mean, you can argue there's racism yeah, in England, I, but it's hard to have racism without yeah, any no, no, racial I, I, minorities. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I, and I'll just tell you a story about those first 20 years. And this is my, 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 uh, my fiancé's uh, 18-year-old son had a kind of found memory. At age eight, he refused to take a fork at a restaurant from a black waiter because he thought that the fork was infected because the waiter was black. Wow. Now, he has since kind of emerged out of that, right? The fact that he's, he's telling the story on himself, I don't sense any, any racial issues. He's a, he's a lovely guy. Um, but, but there's something in the groundwater where even before we're fully conscious, we understand that there's a, there's a caste system here and that, that we're, we begin to position ourselves with, within that, within that caste system. But I would say overall, not to be boring. I agree with your criticism. I, I, I generally believe that most people are a little bit racist, that we all have, you know, we all have our preconceptions that may be fair or unfair, and that it's very complicated because a lot of racial groups or ethnic groups encourage certain stereotypes about themselves or, or create complicated mazes for other people to get through, right? Where there's certain things they're allowed to say about themselves, but you're not allowed to say about them, and so on and so forth, and that there are dueling impulses in the in most people of goodwill, leaving out, let's say, let's say two percent on the margins, the people that actually were in there beating the crap out of out of cops with American flags, um, un unlike hot vegan alt right guy, <laughs> um, and that we at the same time harbor certain racial instincts or fears, but also want to be, see ourselves as not as anti racist. And I think that that is probably true for 80 to 90 percent of the public. And so the, the, the kind of info battle is between people who want to exploit that kind of internal innate racism, right, to exploit the fear that I think particularly lower middle class and lower class white people have about black people and have had for years, right, which is that black people are being specially promoted are being the beneficiaries of of certain laws and benefits and and cash payments and incentives 
that are sort of putting them ahead of white people who may be just ahead of them in line. That's totally, I actually really understand that and I'm really sympathetic to that. That's an argument that Arlie Hochschild has made, I think very convincingly, that if, you, if you're able to make the empathetic leap and put yourselves in their shoes, you can totally understand their resentment towards uh, black people and their resentment towards immigrants. Um, so I think that the what's crucial, as you say, is to be precise and not hyperbolic, to be able to make the argument that I think has been an emerging argument in progressive circles. If you listen closely to AOC and other people of that sort, or if you listen to Biden, the central argument is together we can do a lot more than we're, if we're divided, right? Or the left-wing version of it is rich moneyed interests want to use racism to divide us. And let's not let that happen. And let's see if we can find ways to kind of work together. Um, and that's and, that's you know, what like you hear from the left. I'm saying that's an emerging argument. Okay. Right. Well, so I think I think the thing, you know, as as a follow of you or I think the thing you miss about the left is, and I think the thing that one always misses when one, I think, caricatures and stereotypes another group, is that there's an auto-critique happening. And there has been an auto-critique happening within progressive circles. You know, uh, and I, I would not say I was politically active before 2016. It doesn't actually, though it doesn't actually appear in the New York Times ever. Well, it, 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 it actually arguably appears as the Biden campaign, right? The, the, the Biden campaign made a series of very, very smart decisions. And even if you listen to, to an AOC, AOC, you know, over the last four years has made repeated outreaches to Trump voters and made the argument that, that lower middle-class white people are naturally part of a progressive coalition. Um, and so I think there's a lot of smart thinking on the left the, the probably the most influential left wing kind of version of, uh, and I don't know who the version on the right is, but but kind of a message tester is a woman named Anat Shankar Osorio, who has really been pushing this thing called the race class narrative. And the race class narrative basically says, you can't just be talking about race all the time. And alternately, you can't, like Bernie does, right? Bernie is left but not woke, right? explicitly left but not woke, that he wants to talk only about class. But that if you can find a way to kind of fuse those two arguments um, where you're not just constantly calling people racist, you're then able to fashion a bigger coalition that can have quite a bit of success. You know, one of the most interesting... So when, let me just push back a little bit on that. When, when sure. Pelosi describes the crowd outside the, the, the Capitol as defending whiteness, uh, when the word whiteness itself is now a term of abuse, uh, when someone like Sarah Jong that was, uh, and, or, or indeed uh, Moira Donegan, who demonize uh, people of different races or different gender quite openly in a, a naked way, uh, are defended passionately, actually given jobs at places like the New York Times, uh, that's not the message anyone is hearing, certainly not Trump voters from the quote-unquote left. And when the Biden administration in one of its, well, it doesn't exist yet, but before it even comes into power, explicitly says that in the Build Back Better, we're going to prioritize 
Asians, uh, Black, Latinos, Native Americans, and women. In other words, we are going to deprioritize white men as, as a key, as a tweet. They thought, PR thought, that would be the key to put, put out there. That's not anything like what you're saying. And that's from Biden. Uh, I wish I could hear this, Michael. I mean, I'm glad you're showing me places where I can look and see. And, I, and obviously, there are awesome places. They all, old Marxists hate this stuff. Um, that's why they were among the most ferocious critics of the, the 1619 project. But the establishment now is fully racialized. It has quotas. It discriminates against people on the basis of their race. It, 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 it has told everybody to read Ibram X. Kendi, forced people to read uh, the most extremist books that divide the whole world in this Manichaean, are you a racist or an anti-racist? Uh, I, 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 th- I mean, I'm just, I don't think I am filtering out the good left messages that, that focus on class and race and I don't, I didn't hear a word from Biden that made that, that has made that point. Well, the, 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 I would make two arguments. One is the most important speech is the speech that people spend money on, right? So in the, in the seven or $8 billion of advertising that was spent over the last cycle, the primary focuses of foci of those were healthcare education, COVID, uh, in some cases, $15 minimum wage. The whole conversation about Ibram X. Kendi and anti-racism was a conversation that happened out on the margins, the conversation that happened in Twitter. Um, And I made a point of not reading Ibram X. Kendi because I kind of knew where it was headed. I also know that there was a lady who was selling $275 cashmere sweaters that said, Silence equals complicity. There's there's ridiculous nutcases on all sides of every discussion, as indeed there are on the right. But the serious people that are constructing messaging on the progressive left are focused almost exclusively on economics. But there's also a point where if you are running against an openly racist president who is being supported by very loud, openly racist members of his own party, what do you do about that? Um, I, I think you, you pointed out, if and where it's true, although you've also got to be careful that you don't interpret words that lots of people would take rather innocuously as dog always racial dog whistles. Um, it's, right. it's, so- it's weird to say that you have an openly racist President like Trump, who who explicitly attempted who who explicitly attempted to do outreach to African Americans. I mean, that's not something that someone openly racist would do, right? Or am I splitting hairs here? I mean, you're what, splitting hairs. Well, I mean, tell he me was, if 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 he's not openly racist, then then the word racism has no meaning. Well, give me give um, me a few give me a few examples of uh, just a few examples of openly racist statements that he's made. Well, I, I, the Muslim ban, I, you know, the, his, his. Well, that's on, that's about ad, religion, right? And terrorism. The, well, it's also ethnic, but the, the, uh, his, his continuous boosterism for increased police violence. Um, you know, when he was campaigning in 2016, 
he appeared with members of the Suffolk County, Long Island uh, police force and made the argument uh, that was obviously racist. I mean, there's just, there's just no way to not talk about it as racist, that you should be smashing suspects' heads into the roof of cars as you put them in uh, like they used to do, right? And, and the point being is that, and, and he succeeded, in getting police forces, like the, the head of the New York City uh, Policemen's Benevolent Association, who appeared at him, appeared with him in a wildly incendiary rally that was really all about why cops should be able to use more violence on suspects. Absolutely. I know. And I pointed that out very early in the very early rallies. I was like, what the hell is this? Obviously. Now you're saying it's obviously racist. I would argue that obviously it's, there are plenty, plenty of fascistic, let's put it that way, populists who talk about cracking down on, on, on disorder and uh, law and disorder, uh, uh, breaking of the law and, and uh, general, I mean, now, if that is always so racist. Insider, insider trading is what he was talking about. No, he's talking about street violence, obviously. Um, he's talking about yeah, how you when, handle when people you, on the and, streets and, and, or, or demonstrators, for example, in his, in his, that's how he, the, the language often came up when a demonstrator was there. He said, get them out of here. I'd like to see them on stretchers or knocks in the face, most of whom were white. Uh, you, again, uh, I, I couldn't be more on your side in terms of the hideousness of his endorsement of state violence. On the other hand, I don't see it as openly, obviously racist. And, 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 and I, I, now, it may be just where I'm coming from, but I think a lot of people wouldn't. And a, and a lot of, obviously, a lot of African-Americans and Latinos and minorities didn't hear it that way either. That's why more of them voted for him uh, proportionally in uh, 2020 than in 2016. So they, they didn't hear this, even they didn't hear this as racist as such. They were told well, so it was racist. Right. So if the if, if I'm correct, the the proportion of the African-American vote that Biden got was 87 percent down from 89 percent yeah. for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. yeah. So so a but, calamitous but, drop. but do you think all <laughs> do you think all uh, all invocations of the importance of law and order are racist? In the American context, um, you can't extract racism from those invocations because those were traditionally and historically used as coded language for cracking down on, for, you know, cracking down on black crime and black violence and against cities, right? If you remember that Trump was explicitly talking about, you know, that, that cities were like jungles, they were wild west, dangerous places that nobody would want to go to. He was talking about how I'm going to save your suburbs, that if Biden comes in, your suburbs, suburbs read white. Explicitly appealing to white women as well people. in that context. They're coming for your white women. Yeah. I can, so see, I think, I can see that. Absolutely. I, I totally yeah. concede that. I concede. Uh, but I, 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 I do think that it's possible lots of people hear these things as just less crack down on criminals. And, and when you object to that, when people object to that, uh, it definitely comes off the wrong way. That's why uh, the, you know, the, 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 the belief, for example, the New York Times uh, 
staffers that cracking down on rioting in Manhattan, if all hell had broken loose to let the feds in, they actually evicted someone who just uh, who actually allowed a piece to run, arguing that we should crack down on law and order. Even though most of the rioters, by the way, many of the rioters were, it was very multiracial this summer. It wasn't just, that was what was remarkable about it. Um, right. Well, I mean, look, I, I'm a, a uh, I mean, everyone likes to say they're a free speech absolutist. I'm always looking for a way to be pro free speech. And, um, you know, uh, James Bennett was my former editor of The Atlantic. Uh, actually, so was, so was Ross, Ross Douthat. Um, and, um, you know, uh, James Bennett is one of the nicest, kindest, smartest people I ever had the pleasure to work with. And I think the whole thing was was deeply unfortunate. Um, but um, I but think, if enforcing I think, law and order is inherently racist, uh, which is what you sort of imply uh, out of context is not inherently racist. Law and order has been used historically by conservative politicians as a way to dog whistle to white voters that they're going to keep black people out of your neighborhood, right? And it's not, this is not, this is something that goes back to Reconstruction. It goes back to pre-voting rights era South. These things don't come out of nowhere, right? And I think one of the ways in which you know, as you said, that you're naive a little bit about race in America and and having missed those first 20 years is the way in which all of that is like deeply internalized um, by anybody who grew up here and the understanding of how the tragedy of racism is core to the American experience is something that we, we, we argue against, we make fun of wokeness, we make fun of, you know, uh, silly left-wing people, but it's it's all to me a little bit of a smokescreen to what has to be, you know, finally a a a a real effort to contend with race and racism in America. And and I think the 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 response, which is also fair, is racism is not everything that America is. America has so many. I'm, I'm passionately patriotic about this country. I understand that there that that. The, the American experiment is um, has to succeed, but it's it's in my love for that that you know for that core possibility of America that that we have to come to terms with. I mean, I you know I think. But what if I, think, I were to say the opposite? In fact, that that, that sure. for example, if we go back to the eighties, say, and early nineties, when uh, the predominantly African-American areas within major American cities had crime rates that were just simply, to, to today, from today's perspective, insane. If I were to tell you that easily the most disproportionate victims of crime are African-American, by far, uh, that the, the people who, the, the black lives that have been saved because of better policing in the last 30 years have, has been an extraordinary achievement. Uh, that Giuliani, who was a racist, actually managed to reduce the actual toll of black people being murdered on the streets more than any other, certainly than any other liberal, and that uh, 
and that many of these democratic cities are now seeing massive increases in murder of innocent African-American civilians, that, that, that easing up on law and order is actually victimizes African-Americans, and that this is a, uh, often a white uh, attempt to, to actually go against the very basic interests of minorities. And that when you have this critique of mass incarceration, which began by leaders of African-American communities demanding some relief from unbelievable levels of violence. And now we're, now we're told that was a form of white supremacy. I mean, I think, I think that it's more complicated than that. And then we have to ask, yes. why are the rates of murder so much higher, whether the people committing murder, so much, so disproportionately African-American, when, when that it does not, it would not mean that way if you just took socioeconomic uh, status into account. So there's a, you know, there's, it's, it's a much more complicated picture. And when I, when I watch uh, and read uh, yeah. books like The New Jim Crow or I, I, 13th or the, 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 the James Baldwin documentary, which implies that all attempts to create law and order are inherently racist. I mean, what it says to all the black police chiefs in the country, what it says to, uh, to all African-American citizens, to all the cops who are African-American, to people, uh, this is not, law and order is not the imposition of racism. Well, so, so let, me, let me complicate your complication a little bit. Um, so, so before I was in TV, I was a magazine editor, as you know, but, but the, your listeners will not. In 1995, I was at New York Magazine. We ran a cover story that uh, I believe was 95 that lauded uh, Rudy Giuliani's breakup of the Democratic machine in Harlem, which I, I think had limited the ability to crack down in crime in Harlem. And then also, um, you know, his new method of policing that he and Bill Bratton had put into place. And the extraordinary success that they had had in reducing the murder rate, uh, eventually in East New York, which was which was New York City's most dangerous neighborhood, down to zero. Um, so I'm very on board with that, and I think that most people on the left are also on board with it, right? So when when defund the police came out, and and so it's interesting. In the in the I, I can see you shaking your head. <laughs> I just um, I just I one can't wait to hear all these progressive voices defending the police last summer. That's all. I'd love to hear them. They were very, very it's loud. Not really, it's not really about defending the police. It's about reforming the police. I think the Obama commission that, that he had put together uh, at the end of his second term had a whole series of very reasonable reforms that I think most Black people would get behind, right? So you have, you have two things that are, are in opposition but equally true. One is that the police is crucially necessary to avoid the kind of increases in crime that you're describing. Two, it is also true that, that uh, a lot of policemen are much tougher on black people than they are on white people, so that the experience of being black in a city or any, anywhere in the United States is in a position, puts you in a position where you're both needing and fearing the police. So until you can kind of untie that knot, you're going to have people pushing on the one hand to law and order, on the other hand to defund the police. But the interesting thing is when defund the police came up, 
And in fact, there was a long and really fascinating discussion on this clubhouse conversation that I was part of. The younger kind of, you know, 15 to 25 crew were all yelling about defund the police. The older folks, everybody was black, were saying, this is really stupid messaging because we know that you do not mean it. And we know that this was a was a dangerous and bad thing for us to put out because it would be quickly weaponized by people on the other side and turned into something where everyone would be like, yes, everybody on the left believes in defund the police. Everybody on the left doesn't believe in defund the police. There are radical elements and there are intemperate elements and there are naive elements who believe it. And if I was a 25-year-old uh, uh, you know, uh, black guy, I might believe it too. Especially um, if you're told you live in what is a sham of a democracy that is simply a mechanism to impose white supremacy forever, uh, which is the leading argument of the leading intellectual lights of the progressive racial left. Uh, of course you would. These are not these are not agents of a neutral state come to enforce order. The in America itself, as the New York Times has insisted, is an inherently racist construction designed, designed to permanently oppress. So therefore, every cop, black or white, especially black in some ways, are really invested in the enforcement of white supremacy. Now, that is the position of almost all the leading uh, left-wing magazines, thought papers, and I, I so on, that, that exists. I, I now, think, if you were if you were a 25-year-old black kid, uh, and that's what you're told, and this is simply a continuation of the Confederacy, uh, which you're told explicitly uh, by places like the New York Times or the, uh, then, then of course, all the cops are bastards, uh, as, is, as, think, as, as was think, sprayed everywhere. If you're, if you're a 25-year-old black kid, you've had 10 to 20 encounters with the cops by that point, whether or not uh, you've done anything wrong. Um, you know, I was reminded of, there was this amazing Chris Rock video that he put out, I think about 10 years ago, where he recorded himself repeatedly being pulled over by cops in his car and repeatedly being questioned about whether he had engaged in any criminal activity. Um, I don't think that the 25-year-old black kids in the South Bronx are reading the New York Times or reading Abraham Kendi. I don't think they need to. I think that their experience of, of the state, if I may, is one where it's, where it's, 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 it's it's explicitly antagonistic. And so it's not their job to, to, you know, kind of pull a Steven Pinker and understand that their situation is better than it was 40 years ago, which in some ways it is, and in some ways it isn't. It's our job to reform the police so that, you know, that there's a, you know, and, and, and the NYPD actually has done a lot of good, right? It's a much more diverse police force. I think there's less fear of black cops than there is of white cops. But there's still, especially after what happened last summer, I mean, there was stuff happening around the corner from me that was completely terrifying. I mean, the, the, the level of police overreaction, I live a couple blocks from Washington Square Park. It was absurd what the police were doing. And I think, you know, hostility and resentment for the, for, for the police in general is completely deserved. Um, <laughs> well, I wasn't in that spot at that time. I can't 
debate you about that specific <laughs> thing that you yourself saw. I did see there was there was uh, they were the most damaging riots in decades, I think, in terms of the damage that was done to people's property, to to the streets, to public order. And indeed, some people were even burned alive. I don't know what the police exist for if it isn't to stop that. Um, of course. And of course they exist for it. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think that, you know, the, 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 the irony, right, about, um, you know, what the NYPD is doing now is, and a lot of police forces do when they're, when they're under threat is that they pull back and they decide they're not going to really step in and solve crimes. So I, I think this stuff is all really complex, really thorny, and kind of I think goes back to my, my sort of core point, which is that there are huge structural issues around race in this country that need to be addressed so we can get past this, you know, kind of a bad marriage, right? We need the, we need the police but why do they keep acting as badly as they do? Um, they also act, there is, there's also a large numbers of them that do great work all the time. Absolutely. And, and we take them often for granted. I don't think we should lionize them in the way that some people on the right do as some sort of super force of heroes who are always heroes. They're not, obviously. Um, yeah. But when you look at what's happened uh, to some of the major cities since those riots, and since the police have been basically told to lay off uh, combating crime, I think, I think you and I can analyze it. But if you live in the neighborhood, a couple of neighborhoods away from me, and you, your toddler has been shot dead in a gang shooting, um, you might feel differently because there aren't any cops around. Because having cops yep. around is a form of racism. So, I mean, I, I, and, and this surge in, in murder in the last ha half of the, the year really disturbing to me. No one talks about that. Um, or some people do, but certainly no one on the progressive left seems to be, seems to be campaigning for crackdowns because African-Americans are being slaughtered on the streets by criminals. Uh, I mean, 7,000 deaths a year versus 19. Now, every single one is unacceptable. But some perspective involved in the sacrifice of, of human life, it seems to me, is, is, is worth airing, at least worth considering that this isn't quite that black and white. And uh, as it were, as, as, as it were, um, how do you, why, why, let me put it this way, why isn't just talking about class? Because I think, in fact, there's a, actually an amazing majority in the country now that sees the, the, uh, what I would call the, the, the failure of the success of the Thatcher-Reagan neoliberal era, which is phenomenal growth, unbelievable success in reducing poverty throughout the world in general, um, biggest drops in global poverty ever, thanks to capitalism. Uh, but there is, I mean, people like me who, who wanted to cut taxes are perfectly prepared and willing to see big tax increases on the wealthy. We're, we're interested in UBI. I'm interested in finding ways to support working class Americans. I mean, so many of us have moved so far to the left on economic questions. We can see the, the threat that this kind of inequality does to a democracy, which is very profound. We can see how it tears a society apart. 
because the people with the most money have less and less interest in the common good and all the rest of it. And, and so I'm much more open to spending, to support uh, working class and poor people. But when I'm told that I'm a white supremacist every day, a Nazi, a member of the KKK, someone who has to be banned from discourse because I don't share the critical race theory view of the world, which is everything is about race, um, you're, turning, you're turning me off. I mean, I still vote a Democrat, and I still will. But if I'm feeling that way, I can't imagine how many other Americans feel. And, and why was Obama's approach so bad? I mean, he got reelected okay. twice by not making it all about race. Well, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, will, I will gently push back on you on one thing before agreeing with you wholeheartedly on the rest. I think the whole thing about feeling personally affronted by things like critical race theory and Ibram X. Kendi, you, you don't have to walk into the bullets. I don't think they're directed at you personally. I think that there's been a long run in the country of, uh, you know, faddish, voguish, lefty discourse that silly white liberals jump on and then kind of move on with their lives, right? So one of the things that I've heard you talking about, sort of corporate wokeness, you know, uh, Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy and you uh, are, are exercised about corporate wokeness. Having worked at a large corporation, corporate wokeness is what you do so you don't get sued, what you do so that you you know, uh, you know, can appear kind of cool and groovy to the public while you're funneling millions of dollars in, 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 in campaign money to people on the right. It's a sort of classic dance. And the idea that, that corporations are out for anything other than their bottom line, you know, the idea that Jamie Dimon is some kind of big, uh, you know, progressive wokester is laughable. So that, that bad things happen in the world and he's covering his ass by sort of, you know, having you know what they call the pro-social uh, group of, in 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 their in their corporation, you know, put out some pablum to show that they're kind of a 21st century company doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, but I I do agree with you that there's a huge opportunity in this moment. So I mean, this isn't speaking of things that don't get talked about. So so Trump won Florida. The $15 minimum wage proposition that was on the ballot in Florida in November won 61% of the votes. And so if you want to talk kind of purely, I think there's a distinction that, that we need to make between, you know, academic thinking, critical thinking, and then political, smart political thinking. I 100% agree with you that focusing on things like the $15 minimum wage, focusing on, on UBI, which is as much a right-wing idea as a left-wing idea, right? Because you could sort of use it to knock out all sorts of social programs and put power in the hands of individuals is a huge opportunity for our side. And that- I'm and not that on any side here. Don't, people, don't, what? Don't, don't include me in your side. I, I'm not on a side here. <laughs> um, <laughs> how dare you try to make me a member of your club? But I, but I think that that actually- that's actually, I think, sort of gets to the point, right? Mm -hmm. Is that I could make, make you a member of my club and that there is a potential alignment, which is something that I think Bernie understood, right? The idea of the, of the $15 minimum wage was something that was not even remotely 
on the table until he put it on the table. The idea of universal basic income was not remotely on the table. I'd never even heard of it. Until really? If you'd read Charles Murray 20 years ago, you would have. <laughs> Sorry, that well, was an unnecessary was taunt. Making, <laughs> I was busy making busy making flavor of love. So <laughs> doing <laughs> the important you things. Only, you can only do so much. <laughs> <laughs> but but yes, I think there's that 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 one of the things that Obama I think was very smart about was he understood that there are certain things that politicians should just shut up about because the culture will take care of them on their own, and that politics from a cultural point of view is something that kind of comes along later once the cultural seeds have been planted, right? So as with gay marriage, which was which is something that I think you as much as anybody gets credit for, you were the first person out there with that idea. It then took almost 20 years before that was able to reach a level of cultural saturation before a politician felt comfortable enough to say that I'm in favor of it. Ditto for things like marijuana legalization that were a political third rail as recently as 15, 15 years ago, and now anybody can be pro-marijuana legalization. So so I think that there are like really exciting, positive things happening. So you've picked, you, I, you have picked yeah. the two, the, and as far as I, I've racked my brain about this, the two things that have actually, the new things that have actually achieved legitimacy and settled in, and in which both parties kind of accept, um, uh, but I don't see much else uh, in terms of, of bringing people together. And those also kind of sliced uh, the two sides a little bit because both Red and Blue America has gay, have gays. Uh, and and marijuana is about the only thing left now that unites the United States. <laughs> I mean, it was, I mean, it, I thought it was telling that these these crazies that invaded, the, the there was one room in the house where they sat down and smoked weed. It was, it, it, you could smell it a mile away. So they invaded the Capitol to smoke pot. So in some ways, red and blue America unite over tolerating their own homosexuals and, uh, <laughs> and smoking their own weed. Uh, but I don't see much else on, on race, for example. I thought we were getting somewhere and we were beginning to move, but then it's, then all the rhetoric is for further polarization and deeper polarization. Right, but I think I, I agree with where you're headed with this. I think that there's a savvy, right, if you if you think in an Obama-esque way, mm -hmm. right, which is there's certain things you talk about and there's certain things you shut up about. And I think that it, from purely from a political point of view, de-emphasizing race as a core part of the democratic message and focusing more on economic and class issues is something that I think potentially could begin to scramble the political calculus. Yeah, and right? that's and why I'm excited that, yeah. about a stimulus uh, that would come. And when I look at Biden, I think, great, we're going to get a big dump of investment, as it, as it were. Um, and actually, the CARES Act, if you look at it as a tool of social policy, was incredibly successful in reducing poverty this last year. In fact, poverty went down in 2020 in the middle of this credible epidemic. So there's lots there. And then the Biden comes out with, um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to consider the vaccine being racially distributed so that um, uh, African-Americans and, and, and minorities get the vaccine first. That gets scotch, but it's there and there is a debate about it. Then we have the notion that the stimulus is going to go, first of all, to non-whites. So this is not a fusion. This is, this is uh, what I think is going on. However, Biden was elected. The Democratic Party as such is 
fundamentally now about race and not about class and race and gender. Uh, uh, and that strikes me as uh, evidence that, that, that you may be right, but you don't have any power. And I don't see any indication of it in, in the Biden-Harris administration. I think that, you know, one of the things that, that you know, uh, Biden has a coalition of 80 million people mm-hmm. and, and wildly divergent constituencies that he has to keep under his tent. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't draw too much from that because uh, he's under huge pressure from the left um, and huge pressure from the right. And, I, and he's going to nod and faint in, di- in different directions. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, there's huge resistance to him on the left because they don't think that he's progressive enough on issues of race and, you know, and point to his history. And, you know, and, and if you, you know, if you, I think sort of. I don't think Twitter, they have to worry. What? I'm not sure they have to worry too much. Uh, uh, because he's 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 uh, shown no indication of of tacking to the center on that question so far. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I, I have plenty of hope that he will focus on economics, which will have a racial aspect to it. Um, yeah, and I think and I think that in this moment, you know, as as the Republican Party is essentially, you know, is potentially potentially willing itself into non-existence. That, that the best thing for the Democrats to do and the best thing that Biden did during his campaign was to put out very few policy prescriptions, just talk blandly about unity and kind of stay off the airwaves. Brilliant campaign. And if he can continue to do that yes. um, and, and, and sort of pick very obvious, highly promotable causes to push. Which, of which he has many. Yes. We're going to yeah. give you a pay raise. We're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to give you a public option in healthcare so that you can get it. You no no one you'll be, you can get cheaper healthcare maybe. Um we're going to expand Medicaid. We're going to help your healthcare security, which is such a, a popular message which won them the midterms. Uh yeah. uh yeah, god would I love that to happen. And yeah. trust me, I voted for the guy I hoped. And I also think that when you talked about the generational gap in African-Americans, I think that, that Biden would not be president without the older generation of African-Americans voting in, in, as, in as big a way as they did to support him. Um, Precisely I th- right. I think most but, but, middle class is certainly not radicalized African-Americans are relatively socially conservative, uh, and they do want a unifying leader. They don't want this racial conflict, um, but they want help. Uh, and and with any luck, he will manage to do that without inflaming and disenfranchising or ma- or alienating uh, Trump voters. I mean, there 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 were. Su- I mean, to me, it was a surprising resilience of that coalition. It is a very strong coalition on the right now. It may yeah. it may be imploding. I don't know by its radicals, but um, but uh, it's 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 there, and I don't think it's going away. And I think Biden has an amazing opportunity to both move the country forward, but also to keep avenues open to those people, uh, which means sending certain signals every now and again that he gives a shit about them. Uh, I, I, I 100% agree. And I think, I think from a political point of view, cre- uh, having a constantly available on-ramp and I think making, making a distinction between the Kevin McCarthy's and Jim Jordan's and, and voters who you know, in, in, in our research for our PAC, 
there's very little ideological coherence in most voters. Mm -hmm. they, they, they haven't, and you know, and, and they may not have the luxury to do the work to come up with a fully coherent philosophical yeah. worldview. Yeah. And that they may favor policies that are internally contradictory. Right. Well, we, no, all, we all do, actually, because we're humans. But here's why I want to get on some positive things. You've, you've been testing. You've been doing focus groups. Tell me a few of the messages that fuse the race and class issues in a way that really helps, that moves the needle. What are the, how do you fuse those in a way that does not alienate a whole a group of people? So, so one of the most potent messages that we used that, that actually we had huge success with in, in Arizona in 2018, which, which is one of the most insane issues, for, you know, from my point of view, from, from the Republican point of view, is, is Medicaid expansion. And, and not to get like excessively geeky, but, but after Obamacare was, was put into place, um, there was a Supreme Court ruling that basically said that uh, that Obamacare could stand, but states would not necessarily have to ex accept the expansion to Medicaid that was part of it. But the financial structure that was put in place as part of Medicaid expansion remained there, which meant that that states were paying tax money to the federal government to fund Obamacare, that the federal government would then send back to the states in the form of healthcare subsidies to allow poor but not desperately dirt poor people to get Medicaid, right? Because the Medicaid eligibility requirements yeah, yeah. are shockingly low in places like Texas. Yeah. Uh, I think it's like $8,000 a year in, in uh, income. Uh, if you get more than, if you have more than $8,000 a year in income under current Texas law, you are not eligible for, med for Medicaid. So that, that amount of money was free to these states. You, could, you just took the money, and if you refused the money, the money was sent to other states so that your state would actually be losing money. So there's a series of states, I think there's still about 10, and you can kind of guess what those states are, that have refused year after year after year Medicaid expansion, which is free money to allow poor people to get healthcare benefits, which otherwise they don't get. So that was a topic that we ran on, uh, ran ads on to really strong effect in uh, Virginia in 2017, uh, which was the first year that we, we worked on behalf of 17 uh, state house Democrats. We came within one vote of flipping the chamber, but we came close enough that they ended up, the Republicans, the very narrow one-person Republican majority, ended up passing Medicare, Medicaid expansion after refusing it for four years. How does that messaging include on. race? Yeah. That's what I want to know. How did that include how race? That that's, how does that include race? You're not talking about race at all. Race. Well, yeah. that's my point, yeah. not yours. Your, your point is yeah. you have to do both at once. And my point is you can do, if you just use class, if you just direct healthcare access to the very poor, you are almost always disproportionately going to be helping African-Americans, but you don't use that in your messaging to alienate or even provoke uh, racist whites. That's, that is, that's Bernie. That's not what you're talking about. I want to know a well, message that fuses I, well, the two I, I, in a way that doesn't <laughs> engender more racialization, more racial polarization, but can actually help people who are in those minorities. That's what I'm looking for. 
Right. So I think that the, the, the race class narrative, which, which I just to clarify, we did not put into action as part of our own agenda. I just want to know an we, argument that does it. I mean, I want to know the messaging is, that does it, that works. Is, is racism divides us. We can do so much better if we're not divided. But by this is racism. what I hear from the right. I'm not hearing that from the left. Right. I mean, I agree uh, well, with that. I agree that, with that. But it is a yeah, it's yeah. an argument to focus on economics rather than culture. Um, and and it's popular. I mean, that's what I just that's what I just I mean, Obama you know, God bless him, and, I, and I'm a still a big fan and would vote for him tomorrow. But maybe it was just because of his race that, that these obviously economic reforms, like expanding healthcare for poor people and for lower middle class people, for working people who just couldn't afford it, was fantastic. And, and he did get reelected. And I think if he'd run for a third term, yeah. he would have been reelected. But I just don't want the Democrats to respond to Trump by pulling a sort of inverse version of it, because that's only going to make things much worse. I, I totally agree. Um, but why do you think people, the people that hated Obama hated him so viscerally? Here was a, here was a, the most benign, reasonable, you know, as yeah. you pointed out. No, I couldn't the, understand he, it myself. He, and I, he, that's when the I. The waspiest black guy in history. Yeah, he, 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 he was the return of the wasp in the White House. He was Eisenhower, essentially, yes. in temperament and in, I think, in government. Uh, so, yes, I absolutely agree with you that that was the scales falling from my eyes in the sense that there is no other reason for them to hate him with this level of intensity apart from his race and background. And yes. given how unbelievably good a figure he was, that's why I supported him very passionately. But, uh, so, but, but, but bear with me. So, but with Biden, this white guy from... You know, this super white Irish Catholic granddad figure, uh, uh, maybe he wouldn't, maybe that wouldn't be racialized as, as much as it was with Obama. Maybe I have a chance because I've, you know, I've shifted on economics. I, 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 I do think the time is right to redistribute wealth. I really do. And I think it's, yeah. it's right to tackle these grotesque uh, billion, trillionaire class of people that have way too much power in our society. Uh, and I think you've contributed to, to many of the problems we had. But, but when you start putting race in the question and, 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 and really stigmatizing all white people as one homogenous, hateful mass, which, can, I mean, please, that is what you hear everywhere uh, in media anyway. And, and these people aren't, they are listening. You know, they're in the room when these messages are being uh, dashed about. And if they're not, they're reminded of it by Tucker Carlson every night. Now, he's going to keep going doing that, dragging on small things. But uh, the potential for really positive, uh, constructive reconstruction, I don't, I mean, that's not the white word I should use in the historical context, but rebuilding <laughs> Rebuilding of America, which is inclusive, including by has diversity, which means white people as well as everybody else. Diversity yes. should not mean just everybody but whites. It should mean everyone. Um, uh, that I'm hopeful about. At least I, I think it's a way forward. I'm just frightened that, that the, the, the racial left who are obsessed with this question, who may have good points like you do, will nonetheless 
be counterproductive in what they're trying to do if they press it too far. I, I think that's I think that's totally right. And I but I think that, you know, I think you have to find empathy and understanding in the wake of, you know, because because the, the, the central black argument after George Floyd, which seems like ancient history, but was a stunning, shocking, horrible, like I, I still have nightmares about it, you know, thing to see happen. And if you're black, you're like, yeah, I've been saying this to you all along, that this is the kind of thing that happens. This is how we're treated. You guys wouldn't listen to us. And, and you have to get to a place where you can allow that because what I'm hearing you say is I'm allowed to be infuriated by what I see on the right, but you are not. You as a black person need to kind of stay temperate, stay moderate, and not allow yourself to vent your anger and rage. And the levels of anger and rage in the black community are extreme and also justified. And I think the sort of countering it with a kind of Steven Pinker type argument of like everything's getting better, uh, so why aren't you guys happy? Is just not going to cut it. And so I think the part where race comes back into it is some sense that if you are African American in this country, that there's some general understanding from people like us of what they've had to go through, and that there's going to be some constructive effort to change that. Because without that, we're just going to keep going in these cycles. I what happened. I just want to defend summer, myself on one point. I wouldn't prevent yeah. anybody from venting their anger ever. Um, I, and, and, and any look at the media in this country for the past 30 years has done nothing but elevate this argument and this point. Uh, it's not like we're unaware of mistreatment. Uh, we are perennially reminded of it, and rightly so. Uh, but in a way that, to my mind, completely robs African-Americans themselves of agency, that that can rob the debate of, of nuance, like we were talking earlier about the paradox of trying to both reduce crime but not foment racism, which is, you know, there are, there are trade-offs and complications there that don't form into the either you're a racist or an anti-racist uh, model. Um, the idea that, I mean, obviously there are still enormous problems, but, but there, aren't, there, are, there are no it, it seems to I mean, let me give you one example that, that I was at a talk a few years ago, actually, and I made not a strong argument, just a remark in Q&A about, well, Jim Crow no longer exists. There was an explosion from the audience that Jim Crow absolutely still existed. Uh, and I think, and there was no distinction made between, between the government itself designating a group of people second class uh, which is inimicable uh, and, and foul and has stained us for so long. But that we have ended that. This is, a, this is a more insidious, complicated form, and it is not entirely the function of white people that it has happened. Uh, and, uh, and at some point, there also has to be a taking of responsibility for for the future of, 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 of oneself and others. Uh, that I think, that I want to push back on a little bit more forcefully. I would say in terms of expressions of current Jim Crow, um, the fact that 
the Democrats are the voting rights party and the Republicans are the taking voting rights away party um, is pretty clearly, you know, when when Governor Abbott in Texas uh, says that there's going to be only one box for you to drop your, your vote in in Harris County, which has millions of residents. And if you are, uh, you know, famously that that town in Kansas that was largely black, where they eliminated any any voting station in the town, and they put the voting they put the they put the the voting uh, polling booth in a uh, private community, a white private community that black people had to find a way to travel there to get there in order to vote. That feels Jim Crow like it does, and. So I think these things are expressed or, or in Georgia, but not when, as, not, and, not as, not as, but, but not the institutional weight of government. But uh, this is government. Well, it is, but it isn't formal. It isn't formally in the law. Look, I'm not going to defend it. It's disgusting and yeah. it's foul and it's of it's the same smarter spirit. Than the, old, the new Jim Crow same, is smarter than the old Jim Crow. They're yes, just, they, in, they, in those respects. But, 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 but when you, when you read Michelle Alexander or someone about, um, about this, uh, uh, no, locking up criminals is not the same thing as taking away people's voting rights. That is a, that is a whole different, uh, ball of wax. Uh, and, uh, I don't think you can describe the African-American community's own attempt to police itself and to free itself from extraordinary violence as a form of Jim Crow. And I think, uh, I think that's that's too easy and too glib, to be honest. To be honest with you, but yes, I I'm appalled yeah. by voting the, the attempt to suppress sp- suppress voting in this country wherever it is, but it's almost entirely devoted to to African American districts. You're right. It's it's disgusting. yeah, which is a you know which which is why people like myself question the degree to which you know this is a this remains a representative democracy. I mean, gerrymandering which was started by Democrats, of course, but really perfected as an art form by Republicans, is racially driven in order to isolate uh, black politicians and concentrate black votes in certain areas. In some areas it is. In other um, areas it's, it's not. It's just an unbelievably, it's, it's a class-based thing. It's a culturally-based thing. It's, it's, it's whatever works to get your, your own voters uh, maximally exploited, right? I mean, and and, and it's and yeah. it's bipartisan. Yeah, the 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 led the notorious Dan Crenshaw sea that surrounds Houston, you know, that finds this yes. thin band of of uh, exurban Republican voters, um, you know, and manages to avoid downtown Houston. Um, you know, it's just it's 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 smart it's smart politicking, but I think it's a hard argument to make. That um, you know that uh, that we're, things are in the clear now, and that this is not a form of state power. Uh, you know, and when when uh, Justice Department oversight uh, has been withdrawn of uh, of voting in different states, that opened you know the avenue for a number of, of Republican states to start constricting voting. Um, and at the same time, I don't think there's a kind of I think the argument. The, the implicit argument, which is that black people sit around and complain and don't make an effort, is kind of Reagan era. Um, you know, I just don't think that that comports to any reality that I'm aware of. Uh, I mean, I've spent much of my career working in and around hip hop and 
uh, black entrepreneurs. And there's, there's nothing, there's no reality to the image that Republicans were very smart about conjuring up in the eighties of the welfare queen and lazy African-Americans who are kind of, you know, I think that the two things that, that, that there's extraordinary levels of uh, creative, intellectual, entrepreneurial ferment in the African-American community right now that, uh, that, that people understand that uh, you have to make the effort um, and that sitting around and complaining and waiting for a handout is not going to work. That's a very, I think, tired, hoary argument, while also understanding that there are, you know, real difficulties if you are black in terms of gaining access to capital that white people don't have. Yeah, here's here's um I'm not I'm not making that that argument. Um I am uh I am worried that by by the way in which the next generation is reared and prepared to be part of this economy. Um I think when you have the disproportionate levels of of achievement engagement in from kindergarten to high school so that you have this crunch at college where there aren't enough people capable of actually engaging the work at the level it should be engaged with. That's a big problem. And uh, I, I live in a city where we spend probably more, I think we spend more per student than almost anywhere else in the country, certainly very high up. And that's true also for, uh, for African-American uh, kids, but they, 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 they don't have the key things that will enable them to be empowered. They don't have two parents in the home and a stable, non-violent environment to grow up in. And that's, that's sort of, that's, that is where I would focus if, 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 uh, if, if, I, if, I had, if I had my druthers. Isn't that the you, root think, of it? I think you'll find that, that that also is maybe an overly racialized argument. Do you, do you find that poor white people often have intact homes? Yes. The, they, the, they, they, increasingly, they don't, and we can see the consequences of that uh, ripple out across Middle America. I mean, we have, you know, we have many of the same things that afflicted the inner cities in the '80s and '90s uh, ha- happening now across the whitest of places and the poorest of places in the in the middle of the country. Uh, different. Right, the opioid crisis is 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 probably a largely white phenomenon. Yes, I mean it's unfortunately it's now coming back into the cities and and but yeah it is and it's I think it's based in the same. Uh, dysfunction of the family. And, and that's, that's what I would like. That's what one, but I don't know how one does that uh, and how one supports that. I do think reducing crime is an important part of it. I think the kids that are too scared to go to school or might be, might be physically or, or wounded or attacked in school uh, are at an incredible disadvantage compared with others. And I, 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 that has to start from the ground up, right? That is true. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where I that's where I I find some of this a bit beside the point. Um, and there are there are people trying to make a difference in that and um, admire that intensely. Um, but it seems without that, we're going to be stuck in a difficult point. But you I want to wrap up because it's on a positive note even though you've been unable to provide me an argument that fuses race and class, <laughs> which was the entire, the entire premise. But nonetheless, uh, 
I do think you can direct things mainly towards people who are poor and struggling and working class without, which will be disproportionately minority, without uh, racializing dis- it. Well, well uh, not it's majority white. If you, if you go oh, with yeah, the yeah. class-based I approach, said disproportionately. most people are white. Yeah, no, it is. But disproportionately, uh, yes. minorities are, are involved. Um, and that could be, I think, a unifying thing. I don't think... I understand why people tell you you can't ignore race. Don't pretend he's not there in a factor, and I agree with that. On the other hand, if you focus solely on that, you tap into all sorts of social and psychological dynamics that can actually hurt the ability to help racial unity, and that's that's my problem. Uh, and I think yeah, I think that I think that's right. And I think, but I think accusing right wing politicians of dog whistles when they're actually talking about helping the poor, or or talking about the poor, or or re reengineering the right that way, doesn't help. Wait, which which right wing politicians are talking about helping the poor? Well, there's, Other a, there's than a, Josh Hawley. Well, there is there is a shift going on uh, intellectually in this country and also in the UK, for example, where helping. Uh, we're shifting towards support for working class, patriotic, as it were, quote unquote, nationalistic Americans um, is now a priority, whereas it was not a priority before. Um, I just I just think if you if uh, if 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 rhetoric and I'm 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 failing to come up with a, an obvious example of this, so uh, I might have to concede the point. But but the, the, but if God you no. if everything right right wing people say is just a dog whistle for racism, then they will stop saying anything that that really could help. In other words, depolarization really is 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 the issue. And I, and I think I, I mean I don't think we disagree that much, to be honest with you, about 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 how you frame that. I, I, right. I, I would. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I was hoping to have. Well, a, no, a because I do think there's a different perspective here in terms of race in America and how that impacts Boston and how that affected the Trump movement and so on. That's worth unpacking. And yeah, and, and but I mean, look, if you listen, if you listen to like uh, Stuart Stevens or even Joe Scarborough or David Frum, you know, as as they kind of moved into kind of the the sort of anti-Trump camp, and they sort of flushed themselves out. They were all, you know, the, the most honest of them are willing to concede that race has been, at least since the 60s and certainly since Reagan, a racial dog whistling has been a core part of Republican messaging. And it's how the Republicans were able to win the South from the Democrats. I don't think that's controversial. Um, well, you know, not when that, it comes that, from the mouths of Lee Atwater on his deathbed. Um Yes, from the, from from. But again, I don't think we should be overly cynical about that stuff. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people don't necessarily hear it that way, um, and also vote for Republicans not on those grounds. And I think I think if you characterize all those complicated voters across the country, including a lot of good, decent people as essentially obeying dog whistles for racism when in fact they just want to cut spending somewhere or or uh uh or concern themselves with crime and law and order then i think i think that's not going to help you right but i think the point the point about dog whistle politics and there there was this terrific uh podcast that Ezra Klein did with a uh, law professor from Berkeley was that that Dog whistle politics allows you to consider yourself non-racist, even as it panders 
to your racial fears that you may not even be fully aware of, right? And that was the whole point of the Southern strategy. That was the whole point of, and uh, you know, no, your of, argument was uh, that they were very of, aware of, of it Horton, of Willie Horton. Of sorry, say again. Your argument was that they were very aware of it. Otherwise, it's not a dog whistle. I mean. It, well, it, but now you're saying that they didn't even weren't right. even aware they were sending dog whistles. They, that was just so part of their mindset. Is which which well, argument are you the, making? The Trump Trump sort of screwed it up, right? By sort of by by accidentally saying the quiet part out loud, right? And so he sort of ended the party in a way. What 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 did he say out again? I'm just curious. What specifically you must have in your mind something he said out loud that was not a dog whistle was explicitly racist? Because I think he's actually well, his, his his announcement for when he was running for president. I'm not even going to repeat the details because it's so tedious by now. But about but the, yes, his, about Mexican over the border, all this kind of. Stuff. So you know his his uh, his 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 campaign, uh, which included you know uh, attacks. His closing message was was attacking George Soros and uh, and and internationalist cosmopolites. You know, with sort of something out of 1933, was uh, you know all of that was dog whistle plus politics that then. But you would concede, however, yeah. that a lot of people voted for him. We're not doing so out of racist reasons. They, they were doing so because they liked what he had to say. They missed the America they used to understand. They were, they, they were hostile to mass immigration. They were hostile to the trade agreements they thought had destroyed their towns and cities. And they were hostile to the, the sort of multicultural trendiness of, 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 of trans rights and gay rights and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and the, the demonization of one one sex, uh, so I mean those are very complicated a mix of things, but uh, very complicated mix of things. And I think one of the things you know in, in our uh, our packs probably you know kind of most detailed work that we did in Arizona uh, in 2018 because there was a raging debate happening kind of in in progressive political circles and that you certainly have followed, which is the do we activate the base versus do we get crossover voters? And I've very much been on the crossover vote. And it worked this time. And in Arizona, and, and in Arizona, uh, Kristen Sinema won because she got a significant number of Republican votes. And, and targeting white suburban women has been very, very effective. Um, and white suburban women are MAGA, but in a different way. They're sort of MAGA in the, they're, they're a little bit naive about how America used to be, but they're not racist in any explicit or I think even implicit way, right? They sort of just want people to stop yelling at them. And, uh, you know, there, there was a wildly dated ad uh, from like the 70s or 80s called Take Me Away Calgon, which was like this, this harried housewife and she would, she would pour some bubble bath in and she would take a Calgon bath. That's what they want, right? They just want the yelling to stop. They want the kids to shut up. They, they, they want cops to stop killing black people. They want black people to stop burning down stuff. They're very much like, just make it stop. And that's hugely fruitful as a, as a, as a hunting ground for votes for, for Democrats. And I agree with you 100% that calling those people racist is just not smart politics. As well as and not, it the has the advantage people, of not being true as well. That's right. Um, and even if you wanted to make the argument, which you could make for a lot of people, ourselves included, that that we have implicit racism 
also not a smart political argument. It may be academically true, it may be psychologically true, but it's not a way to get those people on board. Um, so yes, I 100% agree with that. And people who are involved in politics professionally or involved in politics the way I am as a kind of pro-am participant, uh, you know, even though we, we ran about $2 million worth of programs last year, uh, completely ineffectually, I have to say, given the results <laughs> of, of the $14 billion that was spent that, that probably had absolutely zero effect on anything. Uh, Welcome to the world of political donations. Yeah, exactly. That, uh, that, you know, that people that are serious about professional politics and messaging were not saying the things that you say that left-wing people were saying. They yeah. were focused, I think, much more intelligently on on finding those crossover opportunities on the one hand and then on the other hand you have you know this this really wonderful growth of unsexy uh not on twitter no social media groups like stacy abrams group uh or black voters matter in georgia or a group that we worked with in michigan that are focused on long-term community engagement which is like just sort of talking to people in their 20s and saying Go to your city council meeting, know who your police chief is, you know, get involved in your community. And it's very nonpartisan. It doesn't talk about race or racism. It talks about it, it, it's it's very naive in a kind of early 60s way. And I mean naive as a positive thing, which is which is this is your country. If you get involved, you can take control of your country. Yeah. And uh and 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 explicitly is not about shaming people right, right? so so the, and, the, and the biggest trend on yeah. the left go on yeah so the the biggest trend on the left is is uh is called deep canvassing and deep canvassing uh there have been i think 10 million of them uh and there's uh, there's a really good ted talk on it as well if you want to look at it uh involves you know largely groovy young people, many of them gay or trans or binary or multiracial, going into white suburban and exurban parts of their state or their community and talking to older people and making connections with older people, telling their stories, listening to their stories, never making accusations about race or racism, but then using, you know, and, and I just I hate the term because it comes up all the time, using storytelling to, to you know, make connections, but it is true that if you tell someone your story, it's just harder for them to hate you. It is. So and, if, you, yeah, and I, so I would if you're say, a 23-year-old lesbian and you are going to talk to a cranky, racist 73-year-old, if you can make a personal connection with that person, you, you can then start to win them over. And this is the work that's actually going on on the ground. And these are understood in the same way and I think a, a much more positive way than a lot of like the Koch brothers efforts that, that took part starting in 20, 2010 and, and, and are continuing now that they're not going to bear fruit immediately. And, but, but they will bear fruit over time. Well, my own experience uh, and, and the, in, you know, the group that, yeah. in affecting political change in the marriage equality movement was entirely about that. Um, it was, it was not about accusing people of being homophobes. It was about telling your uncle and your aunt, the story of your life and why you just wanted to be a part of the society and you didn't want to 
devastated or up, upended. You just wanted to be a fully part of it. And that they knew us because we had a big advantage over storytelling because many of us, they knew us already. We just had to tell them this further part of our story. But it confirms the idea and the concept that, yeah, if you're sitting online and tw tweeting back hate speech to one another, you're not really going to move anything. If you actually engage people as human beings and you tell the truth to them about yourself, and you don't come there with preconceptions about who they might be, then you can really change people's souls and, and hearts and the minds will follow. Yeah. And it also seems to me that, that the way Biden conducted this election campaign, which I think in retrospect was really quite brilliant, was precisely brilliant. on those grounds, it, it, which is that you know me. I'm going to be, I'm going to take you back to somewhere less insane. And I'm not one of those radical lefties. I'm not a socialist. You know me. Uh, so listen to me. <laughs> and I'm trying to represent representative. And they specifically did do an outreach to, to, and they won because white voters shifted towards them by and large, uh, middle, middle of the road, white people who voted for Republicans last time and didn't. And you kind of have a really interesting kind of control group here because the Clinton campaign was very much based on the opposite. Just mobilize the base, call the rest deplorables, and we have enough numbers to win. And of course, they did win the popular votes. So I don't take that away from them. But yeah, I'm, and I remember, I'm incredibly I encouraged. That I, that I remember on Clinton, I kept sort of cringing a little bit, even though I was a supporter of hers, that like, why does she keep trashing guys? <laughs> you know, like, like, it's like I'm, I'm, you know, and, and talking about her campaign as explicitly female, um, you know, I, I, I feel no kind of broader guilt about maleness in this country. Uh, you know, I feel pretty comfortable with my maleness and I feel pretty comfortable that I treat people well. And so like, why would she feel that it's a smart strategy to attack me? So yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I, but it's positive. And I just, I just hope that Biden understands that and is able to uh, promote that in a way that continues his successful campaign, especially after the nightmare we're now going through and will maybe not be over at all this year. I mean, it is, we may right. have the continuing one, the, the, violence. There was one thing that he did during the campaign that gives me confidence about him for the future, because I thought it was, it was incredibly smart and gets very little comment. So the point at which everyone from your, your pal Josh Marshall on down was screaming for Biden to immediately commit to packing the court. He didn't. He said, we'll see. And because he was he was being he was it was it was his most pressured point during the campaign where he either was being pushed to say that he would or that he wouldn't. And so he clearly understood that if he said, I want to pack the court, that he would lose the election and the Democrats would lose the Senate. And now having won the Senate, Maybe he can pack the court. It's unlikely, and he probably won't try. But 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 that kind of deep political savvy to me is something that 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 gives me real confidence about him. Confidence, by the way, that I never had about him before. Agreed, and that's a hopeful note to end on. Thank you, Michael, for being prepared to go back and forth with me on some of these very difficult topics. Uh, the role of race in America. I miss history. it desperately. Miss, like one of the one of the, you don't understand how lucky you are because. Because, you know, being not, not a person, uh, one of the few Americans without a podcast, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that I have a limited ability to engage in the, the kind of uh, 
intellectual badinage that you've been able to keep going since your your college years. Well, it's been fun, and I and I I want to thank you for for, for making me uh, confront some of my blind spots as well, and I I have and mine um, as well. Uh, well, on this rather promising <laughs> note of dialogue and comedy. <laughs> We will round it up and we'll see you um, next week on the Discourse. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Bye.